Welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, the nature-based show hosted by me, Jack Perks. Each week I'm joined by a guest from the world of wildlife television, art and science. We take a light-hearted look into what makes these people tick and connect with the natural world so strongly, with new episodes out every Tuesday. Hello, how are we all doing? Welcome to the podcast. I just wanted to say a quick thank you to a few people who have got in touch just really saying that they're enjoying the show, which is always lovely to hear from you. And, you know, I do welcome that because it kind of makes me want to want to carry on. And a few people, not upset, but, well, a little bit upset, I guess, that I might be throwing in the towel for a little bit. I just want to reassure people that the podcast will be back. It's just I, I need a bit of a, a bit of a break for a bit. So, yeah, after we get to 100, I'm, uh, I'm going to have a rest and then we'll be back at some point. I don't want to put a definitive number but the podcast will be back. But I'm glad people are enjoying it and this chaotic mishmash of things that I waffle about and for some reason you guys tune in. So thanks for doing that each week. In this week's show, I'm talking to Miranda Krasnovnikov, who is president of the RSPB and a TV presenter best known for her appearances on The One Show and Coast. Miranda studied zoology at the University of Bristol and is closely associated with marine environments, which she has a deep passion for exploring and preserving. Now, I do this podcast for free, and I want to keep it that way, but if you're feeling extra generous today, generous? It's talking like I'm a Jack Russell. Generous. Then there's a link in the description to buymeacoffee.com, and you can help the podcast by donating £3 or more to help keep it going. If you could also leave a review, whether it's on iTunes, I keep saying Spotify, I don't think you can leave a review on Spotify. So wherever you have a review, Podbean which hosts this podcast, I think you can leave a review there. There's already some very lovely reviews, so if you've already done that, thank you very much. If you haven't already, it takes two minutes and it helps me out massively. So thanks for doing that in advance. Now today we talk about the challenges of presenting underwater, what being president of the RSPB entails, and threats to British marine life. Here's our chat. Well, welcome to the podcast, Miranda. Thank you very much. Good to be here. No problem. How well? I would say how are you doing, but you're a little bit under the weather. Yes, with a, <laughs> with a COVID cough. But yeah. Um, yeah, we're all all recovering now. Uh, the worst is over. So um, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. So apologies if I do cough, but. Um, That's okay. That's fine. No worries. Well, I think we should start at the beginning. So how did you start? (laughs) Let's rewind. Um, (laughs) Let's do that, shall we? How did you start your career in, in wildlife TV? So I went through school not really knowing what I wanted to do at all, surrounded by people who were really driven, who had real focus with their careers. And all I knew is that I wanted to work in conservation and, and I love biology. I went on to study biology at university in Bristol, where I still live. And I had a tutor who, who was great, actually, really inspirational guy, sat me down and basically said, right, you know, what are you going to do with your life? You know, wh- where do you think you're going to go? Throw you and in at the deep end. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, well, I quite like to work in telly. Um, and he was brilliant, actually. He introduced me to various people at the BBC Natural History Unit. 
he was he was totally instrumental in getting me my first job which was work experience with a cameraman who again was I, I I was just really lucky I met all the right people at all the right time and so yeah I did I did three months of work experience working on a natural world program all about frogs and toads with the most incredibly inspirational cameraman and um, so I learned a lot about telly um, the filming side of things the editing side of things and that yeah that was my sort of foot in the door and then worked as a researcher at the BBC Natural History Unit and then uh, then various other independent companies in Bristol then got a lucky break into presenting which was again totally random I just I managed to get a sort of round robin email from Fox TV in the States and they were looking for brand new wildlife presenters who were totally inexperienced and knew nothing about the world of presenting, <laughs> but really keen and would do absolutely anything to get on telly. That was me. And yeah, got a, got a gig doing a show with them. And then that was it really. So yeah, I was, it's, you know, it, a lot of it is being in the right place at the right time, but I suppose you could also say a lot of it's making your own luck as well. You create opportunities, you make sure you are speaking to the right people and you do all the right things and so hopefully you know if you've got the right skills and it all sort of lines up it, it does happen yeah I mean, we, we've spoken to a few presenters <laughs> on the podcast before and I think there is that element of luck but I think you also have to have the skills to back it up it's it's, it's all right being in the right place at the right time but you still need to be able to do the do the job so I think you're right yeah, there I would hope so. <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting you say nearly everyone I've spoken to has always said they didn't set out to be a presenter or it, it kind of fumbled into it like no one seems to want to be one they just sort of fumbled well, it wasn't I didn't want to but it was just I just thought that was just completely beyond what I was capable of doing yeah and then I think I realized when I worked in the world of, of tv production that the way that I wanted to tell stories was very directly um, you know, through through the camera rather than writing the stories and researching them and creating them that way. And I think it's just I've got a real passion for everything that I do, whether it's gardening or horse riding or, you know, getting kids close to nature. And um, it's conveying that passion in, a, in an effective way through telly, really. So that's what I enjoy doing. And not only do you obviously present on, on dry land but you take it one step further mm. and, and do it under the water so I wondered what are the challenges of presenting underwater oh god where do I start <laughs> oh every single dive that we do is a challenge it really is um it's just so I think all oh, the the diving equipment anybody who out there who's a diver is like oh yeah diving's really really cool and it's really easy but the diving equipment that we use just so often goes wrong and it doesn't fit very well and you know, we have these enormous masks with microphones in them and they I I, I don't I, maybe I've just got the wrong size face shape but they don't fit very well you just have to pull them incredibly tight to make them fit so they're so you start off on a you know on a in a in a, in a way of sort of feeling quite uncomfortable underwater anyway and then. There's so many things that can go wrong when you're filming, but if you're filming underwater, there's 10 times the amount of things that will go wrong. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, and you've got a very small window in which to do things. So if, if we've got a day of filming, so if the one show, we tend to do everything in a day, but that does give you, you know, a good sort of 10, 12 hours of filming time. If you're diving, you've got two hour long dives and that's about it. That's all you've got. So it really limits and it, the time that you've got and it really it puts everybody under a lot of pressure, quite literally, um, to get everything done in time. So it's, 
it's really, really tricky. And oh my God, so many things go wrong. And then either the animal that you're filming doesn't turn up or the, you know, you, the, the, there's no visibility in the water. So you can't see what you're meant to be filming or that you know that you've got the wrong time of the tide or current or whatever it's just so many more things that can go wrong but that said I really really love the challenge of doing it and I get much more of a buzz out of filming when we're when we're diving because there's just a level of adrenaline that doesn't exist when you're sort of sitting in a field talking about I don't know a magpie or something it's <laughs> you know it's like that's fine but it's very straightforward but I think it's just so much more exciting when you've got stuff going on that you don't really have a lot of control over or so many things that could go wrong it's just a lot more fun really yeah so um and a lot more extreme environment and you also the, the other thing is that you come across stuff that you just don't see normally you know most of us are familiar with well, I mean, you know, anything you can see on land, anybody else can see. But when you're diving, there's that much <laughs> more of a, it's an unusual environment that people haven't spent so much time in. Yeah, um, definitely. It's... So there are new stories there all the time. Excuse me. <coughs> no, I um, no, I agree. It's an, it's an alien environment, isn't it? And I, I was going to ask you out of interest, you know, with the full, because I've never, I've never used one of these full face masks. How do they stop it demisting? I mean, is it is it a, an ungodly amount of spit to stop it or <laughs> Or do they have yeah, like a little spray? That's how you stop your fog from, from demisting is you yeah. spit it and then rinse it through. We we are a bit more advanced okay. than that. <laughs> um, so we get sort of like hotel shampoo in a little bottle or something like that and put it in, okay. which is really awesome if it gets, you get water on that and then it goes in your eye. Um, there are various chemicals that you can get to put on it to stop it demisting. It tends not to. Um, just because yeah. the way the, the system will sort of works. Okay, but, um, okay. I, I just had this picture in my head of <laughs> about four people spitting on this mass to get enough to try and get it get it right. So that's good. That's glad uh, to know that you're not doing that. No, there's all sorts of other things. We did have a contributor once who was sick in his mask. And oh, of course, no. can't take it off really quickly no. underwater. So um, oh, God. that's the worst thing I think that's happened with face mask. And obviously, if anything goes wrong and you have to take it off, you need to have a spare mask with you at all times. Um, so there was a scenario, I've got scenarios for everything, but there was a scenario <laughs> where I did actually run out of air underwater. And um, so there's that sort of panic of trying to get this big full face mask off and then yeah. putting a half mask on and then hoping you've got a buddy somewhere close to you can stick a regulator in your mouth and you're fine. But yeah, <laughs> doesn't it's, always go to plan no and it's one of the things with diving is that people don't i mean it's an amazing thing to do and, and you see all this incredible wildlife and i think it's hard to go wrong but if you do go wrong people are very casual about it but it can be fatal or, or an accident or something so it's you know something we should take seriously or maybe yeah. i'm too serious i don't know no, no, I mean, there is a lot that can go wrong. And I've done, you know, I've done dive shoots up to 60 metres down. And then obviously when you're diving that sort of depth, you know, it really, really is serious and a lot can go wrong. But I think at the end of the day, we're all really well trained. And um, there's always a get out clause, you know, everybody makes the checks before you get in the water. If anybody's feeling unhappy, you just don't go in. Um, there's, there is no pressure for you to do it. And if, if at any point on the dive you're feeling uncomfortable or something feels like it's not quite right, you know, I'm, I'm old enough and brave enough to know that I can just get out of that situation rather than thinking, oh, gosh, but we might not be filming what we're meant to be filming today. Actually, do you know, there's always tomorrow. You yeah. know, and I mean, blame the budget or 
whatever, but safety is so important. And I've learned that by having a number of instances happen underwater where things went went wrong and actually realizing that yeah at the end of the day it's really important that I come out alive and if you didn't film your very uh rare cuttlefish or whatever then you know there's another day that you can go down and do it so no definitely definitely you gotta you gotta think about those things and I I feel more people are aware of of our oceans now and obviously that's something that you're synonymous with and particularly plastic oceans (laughs) sewage entering our seas but I wondered what you thought were some of the biggest threats to UK seas? Oh gosh, where do we start? I mean, I think <laughs> I think the amount of rubbish that we throw in the oceans is so alarming. And again, it's one of those things, if we saw it on land to the, to the extent that it happens underwater, we'd be absolutely appalled, but we just don't see it because it's sort of all sinks down from the surface. And we see the stuff on the beaches, don't we? But we don't really, not, not enough of us put our heads underwater and actually see the detrimental effect of all of this. Um, I've done a number of dives with a group um, based in Pembrokeshire who were called Neptune's Neptune's Army of Rubbish Clearers, uh, NARC, so it's a play on the word narc, which is for divers out there know about being narced is when you get narcosis. Um, But they, and you know, they spend their lives um, diving and clearing up rubbish that's become tangled around all the fragile sea life in the Pembrokeshire coastline. And, uh, you know, it is so devastating that people just chuck all this stuff in the water. It's just, you know, when you see shopping trolleys and computers and, um, you know, they have, you know, there's the saying, you've seen everything, you know, but the kitchen sink, I've got a picture of actually one of them coming out of a dive holding a metal kitchen sink that somebody's chucked in the water. Um, and there's all the monofilament line that comes sort of tangled around all the beautiful spider crabs and lobsters and things like that in the area. You know, that makes me so, so upset. Um, and all those images that we see of seals with things around their necks and oh, it's just it's just absolutely devastating. Well, I think when there's something that we can do about it, you know, it's it, that, that really, really upsets me. But, you know, there's so many other problems. Out there. I, yeah, I know. We could be here you all know, day. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I try to always talk about positive solutions. I try to always celebrate the, the, the amazing life that we've got in the, the oceans rather than, you know, playing on the negative all the time. I want people to realise that it's amazing, it's beautiful, it's rich in diversity and fall in love with it and want to do something about its conservation rather than always talking about the negatives. But, you know, we've got COP coming up and we need to really address some of these massive issues that aren't going to go away if we don't do something about them. No, I I think you're right. It's a really tricky one, isn't it? Because you want to highlight (coughs) issues to people, but at the same time, it can be a bit doom and gloom and almost get people down. So I think it's important to show people what we still have. Um, and like you say, hopefully encourage them to conserve it and with a bit of look, look after it. Absolutely. I think, you know, people underestimate the richness of diversity of life around the UK um, coastline. I mean, we are so lucky here. You know, you can see whales, dolphins. Um, you know, you can swim with seals, you know, you could even see a leatherback turtle if you were really lucky. There's so much that we have and people just aren't aware of it. Um, and that's what I try and do as much with my life um, is just to show people what, what we've got around our coast. And you don't have to get on a plane and fly to the Caribbean to see a dolphin. You know, you can see one in West Wales or in Scotland. So I think it's realising the beauty of what we've got, doing something to you know, to make sure that we've still got those species for my my children to, 
to see in uh, you know in years to come no definitely and that that segues nicely onto the next one because you've seen so many wildlife or so much marine wildlife is there an encounter that stands out to you i'm sure there are many but is there one where you're like that oh, yeah. was incredible totally yeah <laughs> so um so in around the, the uk case it's it's relatively straightforward to go swimming with gray seals and it's one of those things that whenever i get the opportunity i'm just like a kid in a sweet shop i'm so excited so gray seals are just naturally incredibly inquisitive um and you know when there are divers in the water they seem to want to interact and play with us and it is just astonishing when an, an animal comes up to you and starts to pull your fins or your hoses or your mask and 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 you know the juveniles literally want to play hide and seek with you and I, I remember you know learning about this before actually experiencing it and why would a why would a seal want to play hide and seek but they will come up to you and sort of look you in the face and then disappear behind a rock and then you have to go and find them and if they if, if you don't they come back and look at you as like well hang on I'm playing a game with you come on this is it's your turn now um, so just that interactivity with a wild animal who is like us, you know, a social, uh, intelligent, air breathing mammal. We have so much in common with them. Um, and you just wonder what they're thinking and what they're getting out of the, of the games that, that you might be playing underwater. Because sadly, my latest trip to go and swim with the seals was um, in Lundy a couple of weeks ago. And we were blown out by the weather, uh -huh. which is real shame because my son has just learned to become a diver. He did a dry suit diving course in preparation for our trip to Lundy and beautiful British weather. Unfortunately, we got we got. <laughs> blown out but there'll, there'll be another trip next year but I think that's absolutely up there with with any animal encounter I've had anywhere around the world is is playing hide and seek with a grey seal I mean what's not to like no they're amazing I, I went out with Ben Burville I don't know if you've ever met Ben yeah Burville, yeah Mr Grey Seal and we, we did a dive a few <laughs> years ago and yeah that was absolutely incredible amazing like it's and they are it's completely wild they're not tame but they're just curious they want to they want to know what you're about and they do have that sort of curiosity so yeah i, I think that's a good choice definitely there are and ben is like a seal magnet as well whenever he hits the water it's like well they know i think somebody like ben has spent so many hours in the water and he's really got a relationship with these seals and they do they know him and so if you if you swim with him then you know you're bound to have an amazing interaction but um yeah and they are all over him it's just it's quite remarkable so yeah, yeah. it's the aftershave he wears or something i think <laughs> something some, like that yeah, some yeah. Secret. Of his wetsuit. yeah that's it that's it so you're you're associated with marine life mostly but it's is it fair to say you're an all-round naturalist really definitely definitely yeah. um uh you know i'm i'm president of the rspb so i'm very passionate about birds um, you know, I'm, and I, I suppose, you know, if there's any speciality, it's, it's, or interest, um, it's, it's UK wildlife. You know, I love what we've got on the doorstep. I'm always trying to get people more interested in what we've got, um, you know, just on our shores, um, or in our back gardens as well. Um, so yeah, I don't have a particular area that I would say I'm a particular specialist in, um, but yeah, all round. I guess that's good really, because it means you get to see a, a variety of stuff because I mean I I love making my fish in my rivers but few people are ever going to ask me to go look at a badger or something like that not that I wouldn't I'd enjoy that but I kind of get yeah. old with that so it's it's nice to be an all-rounder I guess it's harder to be an all-rounder I would think because it is because to... people imagine that you know everything about everything um and you know I probably know a little bit about lots of things 
Um, but you, you know, people just expect you to have this encyclopedic knowledge of all British wildlife, which, and I always get put on the spot, you know, you know, what's the longest this or the, what's the heaviest this? I'm like, oh, I don't know, just Google it. But um, so it is hard, you know, and, and also you don't want to be sort of jack of all trades, master of none. So that's yeah. why, you know, with the diving, I do have that sort of area of speciality yeah. in the marine environment. But, um, you know, I just, I just love wildlife. I just love being outside. I love you know, nothing more than spending an hour just just watching the birds in my garden or going for a long walk with my dog. If someone does ask you a question that you don't know, I always find as long as you sound like you know, like the answer is, you're okay. <laughs> just pretend that you know, but say it with enough conviction that people will believe you and you'll yeah. get away with it. You'll be absolutely um, fine. Generally, it depends what they're asking though, doesn't it? So you can yeah. say, well, I believe that, you know, the last time I checked that the oldest puffin was actually 38 years old, but um give yourself you know, a get out of jail free card yeah yeah <laughs> and it's difficult know. though it's the worst of when you do talks to kids at school you know and they have the weirdest questions you're like oh my goodness me I never thought anybody would ask that mm. one so but you're going to ask me about my favorite fish or something so <laughs> no, that's the great thing with kids I'm not I've not done a lot of talks to schools but yeah they always ask there's a there's a difference <laughs> if you go to a camera club or or an RSPB group, it's normally the same set of maybe three or four different questions, but kids tend to just pick these things out of nowhere, which is brilliant. You know, it's nice oh, that they do that. Keeps you on your toes though, doesn't it? It really does, yeah. It definitely <laughs> does. And you, you mentioned being president of the RSPB. So what, what does that entail then? Because it's a, it's a title, <laughs> but I couldn't tell you what, what that is. So yeah, what does that entail? Yeah, all sorts of things. I mean, generally, I suppose in a nutshell, it's being an ambassador for, for the char charity, excuse me. <coughs> but, um, Lots of different things. Um, so lots of um, going to sites and opening you know, new exhibitions, a lot of engagement with the public, which is fantastic, um, and just promoting all the campaigns that the RSPB get involved with. I mean, it is a massive organisation, 1.2 million members. Um, you know, it's a big voice for nature and conservation. Um, and it's just a, you know, it's a real privilege to have that sort of role within the organisation as well. So um yeah I get roped into doing all sorts of things it's fun so I never really know what's good what they're going to ask me to do next but um a lot of it's actually recently been getting the kids involved with stuff as well so really trying to push forward this connection um connecting people with nature particularly families obviously a lot of kids just don't get um exposed to nature whether it's at school or at home so it's finding ways of getting a message across um, for, for families to understand more and find ways of getting out and about and appreciating the natural world. Well, I know when I talk to a lot of conservation groups, one of the struggles is to try and get more kids to, to join because it doesn't, it seems to me like a lot of younger people do have this interest <laughs> in nature, but they don't necessarily join a group. Maybe that comes a little bit later. I don't know. So it's a tough one to get them to, to join. I don't know. What's the RSPB like for, for young membership? Is it pretty healthy or? Yeah, really good. Yeah. Really yeah. good, I think. Yeah, I think there's a lot of engagement. There's a lot of ideas of how to get kids out and about. I think at the end of the day, a lot of it does depend on parents being engaged as well. We always yeah. talk about young people, but actually, if your parents aren't really that interested, it's that much harder for you as a you know seven or eight year old to to get out and about. So, I try and do I try you know try and talk about the family as a whole rather than just aiming at the young people. You've got to get yeah. the parents involved as well. So, but yeah, lots and lots of activities and lots of ways of of, of, of doing stuff online and um, you know amazing places to visit and and opportunities. So, 
Um, yeah, and we've got quite an exciting thing coming up at Christmas. So um, the new Netflix Aardman um, film at Christmas is all about a robin. Uh, it's a little animated film about a felted robin. Um, and the RSPB are the charity partner on that film. And I think that is going to be an amazing way of engaging people, not just because it's Christmas and it's robins, but, um, you know, the fact that, you know, all sorts of kids will, will really relate to this little character. And I hope that it's going to bring people into whether it's just watching robins in their garden or thinking more about, you know, what they can do, um, making space for nature and nests and nest boxes and things like that for, for um, uh, different birds in their garden. So that's quite an exciting project. So there's things like that involved, which, you know, I just think, of, you know, it's just an absolute gift. So that's coming out on the 24th of November, I think, on Netflix. Um, and there were lots of exciting ways of sort of promoting this as well. I can't share all of them with you, unfortunately, but uh, it's really one to, to look out for. And that I know is going to run and run. You know, it won't be just a one hit wonder when this film's coming out, but actually that will be um, that little Robin character will be connected with the RSPB, hopefully for a very long time. And, uh, you know, when we do our big garden bird watch in January, which is, again, another way of getting people engaged in, in watching wildlife. Um, hopefully the little robin will, will pop up again and again so um, and and presumably you're going to show the the bloodthirsty nature of robins how they are quite uh... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I've not seen the film yet I think it's all I think I think a lot of that is left I think this is okay. cute little baby robin oh, rather than okay. you know, okay. female robins fighting each other <laughs> Yeah, because they can be, they can be buggers, definitely. I've seen them like that. Well, well, look, Miranda, it's been absolutely fantastic to to catch up with you and have a chat. So, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> no worries. Take care. Bye. Take care. See you. That was Miranda Krasnovnikov. Britain's marine life is so secretive and out of the public's main view. So, when people like Miranda are able to showcase it to a wider audience, it can only be a good thing. Now don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at TitBearded and there's the Facebook page The Bearded Tits Podcast not to mention the YouTube channel Wildlife Exposed TV where you can watch all the videos. Now next week I've got a little bit of a podcast with a difference because what if I told you that you could buy beer, drink that beer and you'd be helping wildlife? Sounds like a dream come true. Well Graham Denton has come up with a way to do this. He's one of the men behind From the Notebook, a company selling and producing real ales to help raise money for wildlife charities. So Graham's going to come over to my house, bring several bottles of beer. We're going to sample these beers in the interest of science and fairness and have a chat all about the company, about which charities he's supporting, where the ideas came from. It should be bloody good fun because I love my wildlife but I also love my beer, so this is going to be a great one. It might devolve into utter chaos after several bottles of beer, but I think it's going to be great. So tune in next week for that one. This has been the Bearded Tits Podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll see you next week. Cheers. <laughs>